Let us begin with the following observation about Rosh Hashanah, which is this, that unlike the other holidays of the, we have in our calendar, Sukkot, Yom Kippur, Pesach, Shavuot, the Torah tells us very little about Rosh Hashanah. In fact, Rosh Hashanah appears twice in the Torah, and the Torah has a very minimal description of Rosh Hashanah. One place it appears is in the list of holidays in the book of Ayikra, and there the Torah tells us briefly, says that uh, on Rosh Hashanah, as a rather lengthy discussion of Pesach and Shavuot, and the Torah has just a couple of verses about Rosh Hashanah. Taber Bnei Yisrael Weimar, in twenty fourth pasuk of chapter twenty three of Ayikra. This translation, page two sixty one. Taber Bnei Yisrael Weimar, b'chodesh hashvi'i b'yachon l'chodesh yelachem Shabbaton zichlon truah mikra kodesh kom lechad avodalot hasu mikrav temi shalashem. So the Torah says. The first day of the seventh month shall be a day of rest, Shabbaton. Zichron Shrua Mikra Kodesh. Here the translation, this particular translation says, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. They translate Shrua as a loud blast. And this day, what uh, is forbidden to do work. That's all the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah in the book of Ayikra. And in the other place where the Torah mentions Rosh Hashanah once again in the list of holidays, and that list is in the book of Bamidbar, and there the Torah is telling us all the special occasions in which you bring additional sacrifices called the Karban Musaf. And once again the Torah lists Rosh Hashanah among the other holidays, once again briefly, and it's very similar to what it says in Vayikra, uh, uh, slight difference. There the Torah says, chapter t- 29, page 352, Vachodesh Vachodesh, Yevachem, Avodalot Yom Yevachem, seventh month, first day, it's a special day, holy day, Work is forbidden. Yom Trua Yerachem. You shall observe it as, and here it says, translation is a day when the horn is sounded. Yom Trua Yerachem. The previous translation, it was loud blasts. Now it's a horn, okay. JPS isn't always consistent, but that's the translation. The Torah then goes on to detail the sacrifices that are brought on this day. And they are ten sacrifices. And then it says, these sacrifices brought on Rosh Hashanah, apart from the sacrifice of the moon, because this holiday takes is the first of the month, unlike the other holidays, it's on Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh has its own sacrifices. So the Torah says the sacrifices particular to this seventh month are apart from the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, and the special sacrifices of Rosh Chodesh. And that, my friends, is all the Torah tells us about Rosh Hashanah. Very little. One has to wonder 
how we got this whole Rosh Hashanah service out of these two verses in the Torah which say next to nothing about Rosh Hashanah. So what I'd like to do this evening is to make suggestions about what is it in the text that allowed for this rabbinic uh, the rabbinic creation, I would say, of what we call Rosh Hashanah. In other words, one could say that there are many ways to approach the question about Rosh Hashanah. One, for example, could study the ancient Near Eastern enthronement ceremonies or whatever. That's a way to go. And to see Rosh Hashanah in that, biblical Rosh Hashanah in that context, but that's not what I'm going to do for a variety of reasons. One is I don't know too much about it. That's the main reason. And uh, I like to focus in on the text that we have before us. So let me just throw out different, I'm just, many, I want to make several suggestions this evening about Rosh Hashanah. What does it actually mean in the Torah? And how do the rabbis take that and how do they run with it and build up what we know as Rosh Hashanah? First of all, what is not mentioned on Rosh Hashanah is very striking. What is not mentioned on Rosh Hashanah is actually the word shofar. Never mentioned. Think about Rosh Hashanah, what comes to mind, obviously, the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, is the shofar. But the Torah never says shofar. The Torah says in one place, Yom Trua Yevachem. Trua could mean a sound made by an an, an instrument. Trua could mean a cry, sometimes in the Bible. The people are crying out. There's no suggestion there's an instrument, they cry out. In fact, the Karaites denied shofar altogether. Torah never says a shofar. It says Yom Trua. But the rabbinic understanding of Trua, in any event, understanding or they chose to interpret this way, is that it's a shofar. Now let's begin with, I think, let me suggest what is the most elementary understanding of Rosh Hashanah. Again, just trying to understand what the, what the Torah says. I'm not interested in defending traditions or apologizing, just understand it. The simple shot, in my view, is this. If we look at the book of Vayikra, chapter 23, the Torah begins the list of holidays with uh, Shabbat. These are Elam Ode Hashem, and it starts with Shabbos. And then it proceeds to list all the other holidays. Interesting is the Torah included Shabbat amongst the holidays. What is Shabbat? Shabbat is seventh day. Shabbat is the one day in the week, the one sacred day within the cycle of seven days. Later in the book of Vayikra, we have two other cycles. We have the cycle of, of uh, I would say three other cycles. We have the cycle, I'll skip around, we have the cycle of, of years. There were six years. It's not chapter 23, but chapter 25. There are six years that you count out. And the seventh year is also Shabbat. Right? Shabtar is Shabbat Lashem. The land lies fallow in the Shemitah year, the seventh year, which the Torah calls Shabbat. The Torah then actually, after it tells us about the cycle of seven years, then gives us an additional cycle, a cycle of seven times seven. That is to say, there's seven, you count out seven years, seven times. And the 50th year is a special year that the Torah calls the Jubilee year, the Yovel. And that is the 50th year, and all kinds of special rules on the Yovel. It's both a Shemitah, 
because you're not permitted to work the land. And additionally, everything is freed in the Jubilee year. The slaves go free, the lands are returned to their original owners. So we have a cycle of week, a week of days, the seventh day of Shabbat, years, sabbatical year, seven times seven in the Jubilee. And in truth, we have in that tradition another cycle of seven, obviously, which is related to the Shemitah and the Yovel, and that is, after Passover, we're counting out seven weeks. Svirat Omer. The Torah puts it in terms of Shiva Shavuot Tisparlach. You shall count out seven weeks. So we have seven days, seven weeks, seven years, and seven times seven. And we have something else, actually. We have months. Seven months. And that, my friends, is what I believe Rosh Hashanah actually is. It reminds me sort of of, of uh, Ramadan, you know? It's the holy month. That's what it is. And the holy month is introduced on the first day of the month with this trua. In other words, if this is correct, I mean, I'm going to say many things tonight I'm not sure are correct. This, I think, is actually correct. And the shot of the Chumash is, there's a special month, the seventh month. And in fact, in thinking about the holidays, we have, we have, two, we have two cycles of the holidays in the book of Vayikra. One is the cycle of Passover. You have Pesach, and then you have Shavuot and you have the wicking of them with the Omer, and then we have the seventh month, which has two major holidays in the Torah. One is Yom Kippur, and then what may be the major holiday of the Torah, the holiday of Sukkot, introduced, and they're both taking place in the seventh month, and introduced by the first day of the month, in which we, one might say we are in a sense announcing. You know, the, the shofar, and I would say it's sister instrument in the Bible, which is the, the, the trumpets, the Chatzot Rot. The function of the Chatzot Rot in the Torah are to make announcements. You want to gather all the people together. You sound the Chatzot Rot. You want to gather the heads of the tribes. You sound the Chatzot Rot. You want to tell the tribes they have to start traveling in the desert. You sound the Chatzot Rot in Bamidbar chapter 10. So the function of the Chatzotrot, and there the Torah uses the term trua, I would add, get back to this in a couple of minutes. So that is to, uh, to, to make an announcement to the people. So I think the function then of Rosh Hashanah in the Peshat of the Chumash is very simply to announce that the special month, we have days, we have weeks, we have years, we have 50 years, seven times seven, or well, that's missing of the months. And here we have the seventh month of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Chua Yelachem, Zichron Chua Yelachem, to inaugurate the holy month, the special month, the month in which two major holidays fall. The first is Yom Kippur and the second is Sukkot. But it goes beyond that. It's more than that, I think. It's not just an announcement. At least that is, I think, the, the, the rabbinic understanding of Rosh Hashanah. It's not just to announce the seventh month. But for the rabbinic understanding, I believe, Rosh Hashanah inaugurates Yom Kippur and Sukkot because there's a piece of Rosh Hashanah that is like Yom Kippur and there's a piece of Rosh Hashanah that's like Sukkot. So if we, we have a chance, I'd like to try to develop this idea 
this evening is not so much developing it. I'm going to put out several ideas about Rosh Hashanah. It's not because the Torah says so little about it. It actually is very, very interesting. You want to say something, sorry? I had no idea what he said. But he also pointed out the, the parallels between Chodesh Nisan and Chodesh Tishrei, that both Nisan starts in Pachodesh Adelach. Of course. And then you Rosh Hashanah. And then you have the 10th of Nisan being the day when he took in the staff of Karpah, right. and the 10th of Tishrei being Yom Kippur, and right. then the Pesach being the 7 days from the 15th to the 22nd, and Sukkot being the 7 days from the 15th right. to the 22nd. Both end in Aseret. Shavuot is called Aseret. Right, the of course. That's true, actually. That's certainly yeah. true. And the truth of the matter is that I would say there are three months in, the, in our calendar which are within the tradition which is singled out. One is the seventh month here, which is uh, the month of the month of the festivals, Sukkot and and and, uh, and Yom Kippur, and this Chodesh Nisan, which is parallel. And then we have, of course, in the uh, in the Megillah, we also have the idea of a of a of a special month. I've been thinking about the Megillah a lot lately. I was curious about the Megillah, just a small point, so I'm thinking about it all the time. There, the Megillah calls attention to the fact that it's not just a, a day in the month of Adar, but it's a month. And I was thinking, actually, about the Megillah, that what's very curious, and then I want to get distracted with the Megillah just one minute, that the way it's... But that's in terms of the yeah, that's in terms of the of the of the of Muhammad's lot. But the thought that I had of something else, which is if you read the Megillah, which describes the way Purim gets established as a Jewish holiday, what is curious is that after the Megillah makes the point that those who fought on the thirteenth rested on the fourteenth and made a celebration. And those who fought on the fourteenth rested on the fifteenth and made a celebration, then the Megillah goes on to say, therefore, the Jews in the unwalled cities celebrate the 14th of the month as a day of rejoicing and they send gifts to friends. And then Mordechai sends around a letter instructing all the Jews to keep two days. By the way, in the Megillah, there's no intimation that some Jews keep one day and some keep the other day. It's obvious in the Megillah that all Jews are keeping two days. But originally, what's curious is they only kept the 14th. There's no suggestion in the Megillah that they established a holiday on the 15th until Mordechai comes around and says, all Jews have to keep two days. Where do you have such a thing? We have a two-day holiday. So we want such an example, which is, of course, Pesach. Pesach, you have, in the Torah, you have exactly this. What, what, what we call Pesach in the Chumash is the day you bring the carbon Pesach, which is the 14th. Chagamatzot is the 15th. So what's curious is that there the Megillah seems to be making a parallel between Megillah on one hand and, and, and Pesach on the other hand in terms of the celebration of the two days, but also in terms of the month. There you have the idea that it's not just a day, but it's a special month. And in any event, what you mentioned before is certainly correct. That that's no, no doubt that that's true. The parallels to, to Nisan are clear. But the idea of the Holy Month that I find very interesting. Now... Okay, so this, let us begin with this. Now, I wanted to point out something else about this idea of Rosh Hashanah as foreshadowing or prefiguring both Yom Kippur on one hand and Sukkot on the other. And that is, we have our Bibles with us. There is a very interesting story that we find in the book of Nehemiah. 
I just point this out. There's, I, there's a lot to say about this. But we turn to our book of Nehemiah says on page 1873 it says of course the book of Nehemiah describes the return to the land. The exiles have returned to the land. Page 1873 The seventh month arrived and Israel was settled in their cities. I read this part in English. Then it says, all the people gathered as one person to the street before the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe, bring the Torah, bring the book of Moses' Torah. God commanded Israel. Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the congregation. Men and women were present. Everyone who could understand. Beyond Echad Lachodesh Hashvi'i. Beyond Echad Lachodesh Hashvi'i. And, uh, let's see how they translate Beyond Echad Lachodesh Hashvi'i. On the first day of the seventh month, which means in Arab jargon, it's Rosh Hashanah. That's what it, right? First day of the seventh month. So what are they doing? They're reading the Torah. Ezra is reading the Torah. Ezra the scribe reads the Torah. And uh, he read the Torah, it says, from the morning till midday. And everybody was listening very carefully. Then it says in verse number four, he stood up upon a wooden tower, which they made for that purpose. And alongside him, a bunch of people, Matityan, Shema, Niyah, etc., Uriah, etc., 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 right, on his right and his left, all these various people, and he opened up the book, the scroll before the people, he was standing above them, and when he opened up the book, everybody stood up, and Ezra blessed, blessed God, the great God, and the people said, Amen, right, they said, Amen, Amen, with hands up, upraised. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before God with the faces to the ground, etc. And these various people explained to the people the Torah. And the people were standing in their place. They read the scroll of the teaching of God, translating it and giving it sense. So they understood the reading. We, we call it Targum, basically. Then the Chemyah. Right? And Ezra and the Levium, right, who were teaching it to the people, said to the people, Today is a holy day. Verse number nine. Do not mourn and do not cry. The people were crying when they heard the Torah. He said to them, Go and eat. Eat sweet. Go eat choice foods and drink sweet drinks. Send portions to whoever has, has nothing prepared. Shlach Manot. For those who don't have. For today is a holy day. And do not be sad. Do not be sad. For rejoicing in God is the source of your strength. So the people, the Levium were quieting the people, consoling the people. Don't be sad. The people went off to eat and drink and to send gifts to friends and make a great, have a great rejoicing for they understood the things they were told.
That's on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Nothing about Nisan Atokif over here, by the way. The first day of Rosh Hashanah. But it was, but it was a long day. That was, right? They, 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 they took all, most of the time. They right, exactly. On the second day, now we have second day Rosh Hashanah. Uvayom Hasheni. Now we're told the heads of the clans gathered to understand the Torah. And lo and behold, they found written in the Torah that God had commanded Moses that Israel is required to sit in Sukkot in the festival in the seventh month. They didn't know that. Such a thing as Sukkot exists. They read the Torah. So, what did they do? They made a proclamation, go out to the mountain, they commanded the people to go out and gather these various uh, myrtles and palms, etc. Sounds like to build a sukkah. We call the Arba Minim. Sounds like the Arba Minim are there to make a sukkah. And the people went out and they built sukkot on their roofs and the yards. And then it says, verse 17, and the congregation, returning from the exile, made Sukkot, and they sat in the Sukkot. This had not been done from the time of Yoshua bin Nun until that day. And the joy was very great. And they read the Torah each of the seven days of Sukkot, <coughs> and on the eighth day as well. Now this is a remarkable passage, obviously, for many reasons. They didn't know anything about the holiday of Sukkot. I mean, the Torah, it's a rather prominent holiday. They hadn't observed it. Doesn't mean they didn't know about it, actually, necessarily. It means they didn't do it. We assume whatever's in the Torah is what people do. But ain't necessarily so. Who says? It's in the books. Who says you actually do it? What people do and what's written are not the same thing. Suddenly the book becomes determinant of what you do. In any event, I want to come back to Rosh Hashanah. Now what is very curious over here, the elephant that's missing, is what? There's no Yom Kippur. There's no Yom Kippur. There's no skips Yom Kippur. Well, I think what is extremely interesting here is that actually, in the next chapter, which is chapter 9, it says, on the 24th day of the month, all of Israel gathered fasting in sackcloth <laughs> and with earth upon their heads. So suddenly, after Sukkot, there's another event which is described over here in this chapter. It talks about fasting, mourning perhaps, and fasting. They're all gathering together. And there it says that in verse number three, they stood in their places, they read from the scroll of the teaching of God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter they confessed <coughs> and prostrated themselves before the Lord their God. So they're reading the Torah and a quarter of the day, mitzvadim, they are confessing. You have fasting and you have confession. <coughs> Sounds awfully like, awfully like Yom Kippur. Not only that, if you read, I'm not going to read the entire thing, it goes on and on. What is in particular striking, part of this we recognize from our regular daily prayer service, is they then proceed to describe at great length 
all of Jewish history to that point, with the point, the emphasis being on the various mistakes, sins, or whatever that they have committed over the course of time, how God in the past has forgiven them, how once again they pray for God's forgiveness, and the language is very striking. Several of these terms we have in our service, such as Verse 33, and other such verses that are uh, found in chapter 9. Now, I'm not interested so much in, in the issue of, from a historical standpoint, what in the world is going on over here, but here is what very striking that you have a description of Rosh Hashanah in which the people are initially crying. They're crying, and they're, and they're mourning when they hear the words of the Torah. They see the words of the Torah as censuring their behavior. They are instructed not to do this, but rather to rejoice, to have festive meals. Um, and what's even more interesting about this whole business is that the description of what happens on Rosh Hashanah, namely, that Ezra is reading them the Torah, when you read that description, he reads the Torah to them, surrounded on each side, this translation. Everybody understands, the men and the women are all there. And he's standing on a big platform so everybody can hear him. It's pretty identical to what the Torah, to what the uh, Rambam describes, for example, or the rabbinic understanding of a mitzvah we call Hakel. Hakel was the mitzvah found at the end of the book of Devarim, I'm going to read it very soon, that every seven years, the entire community gathers together, Somebody reads the Torah to them, all of them. It's a kind of reenactment of, of, uh, of uh, Sinai. But that takes place when? When is Hakel happening? Happens on Sukkot. In the book of Ezra, what is curious is that what Ezra is doing, which clearly sounds like Hakel, it is Hakel, basically, but it's not taking place on Sukkot, it takes place on Rosh Hashanah, and then they jump straight to Sukkot. Because the, they oh, we, we have to, there's a mitzvah called Sukkot. We never knew about this. So they go out and they gather these various species, what we would call the Arameenim. But apparently, according to the book of Nehemi, what it sounds like, that's the way the Karaites understood it, that the Arameenim in the Torah are not for, to, taken separately, that the things you use to build the Sukkah. Whether that's true or not, it's a very interesting question. This is what it sounds like over here. And then, after Sukkot, we have some kind of event of communal confession, repentance, confession, etc., which takes place beginning two on, the, on the 24th, which would be two weeks after what we would call Yom Kippur, which is the 10th. In other words, what's interesting over here is you have the three, these three holidays once again linked to each other, but it would appear to me to be in a different order. Different order. It's Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, and then Yom Kippur. Whereas in the Chumash, obviously, it's Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot. But in any event, what you see over here is, in terms of Rosh Hashanah, something very interesting. And that is, you see, at least in the book of Nehemiah, that Rosh Hashanah seems to have a kind of dual, a kind of dual, uh, dual, dual character. Because the people's initial response to Rosh Hashanah is to cry and mourn, and maybe to fast. They have to be instructed by the leadership, Ezra and his group, 
that that's not appropriate, that they shouldn't, they shouldn't mourn. They should go and eat, for your strength lies in rejoicing before God. And the truth of the matter is that this dual, this duality that we encounter in the book of Nehemiah is true even today in the, in the, in the, in the rabbinic construction of Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> it's what makes Rosh Hashanah different from all the other holidays. Because on one hand, Rosh Hashanah is a very happy day. For example, if someone is a mourner and Rosh Hashanah comes, the mourning is over. Yeah. Because that, 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 the, the festivals complete the mourning period. They break the mourning period. There's no mourning at Rosh Hashanah and Shiva's over. On the other hand, there's something about Rosh Hashanah which is a very fearful day. It's a day of it would depend on which community, but certainly in many communities in the Ashkenazic world, you really feel the dread and the fear of Rosh Hashanah. And it was a custom, by the way, well-known custom in very early times. And the Rabbeinu Asher discusses this in his commentary on the on second Rosh Hashanah. It was a custom to fast on Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. It, I'll tell you something interesting about fasting on Rosh Hashanah. There's something else very curious about Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and it's this, that Rosh Hashanah for, for all Jews is beginning what we call Aseret Yimei Tshuva. Now Aseret Yimei Tshuva, one of, the, one of the features of Aseret Yimei Tshuva is we have special prayers, and especially prayers, we, penitential prayers, we call Slichot. In the Ashkenazic tradition they begin the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. The Sephardic tradition, they start with Chodesh El, actually, Rosh Chodesh, but the Ashkenazim typically start on the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. And it all goes all the way till, to Yom Kippur. This Slichot service that we have, two of the days are very, very long Slichot. There are two. There's one that's extremely long, and there's another one that's quite long as well. What are the two, long, the two big Slichot? Erev Yom Kippur is the shortest. You're, you're, you're talking out of logical sense. Don't do that. Erev Yom Kippur is the shortest. There's almost nothing Erev Yom Kippur. The longest one by far, by a mile, is Erev Rosh Hashanah. It goes on forever. Erev Rosh Hashanah. And there's another long one too. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur itself is but I'm not talking about that. Yom Kippur is a different kettle of fish. Yom Kippur is the actual Slichos is Yom Kippur. Erev Yom Kippur is almost nothing. Now, in the Ashkenazic tradition, the long ones are Erev Rosh Hashanah, and the second longest ones, some, no, Zacharbris is, is, is the Thursday before Yom Kippur, that is not the longest, that's an important slicha, actually, Zacharbris, some Gedalia. The day after Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah is the longest slichas, the day after Rosh Hashanah is the second longest slichas, we're very mocked to start slichas before Rosh Hashanah. And how many slichas are we saying on Rosh Hashanah? Zero. You say no slichas on Rosh Hashanah. What is this? It makes no sense. You ever think about it? No slichas on Rosh Hashanah. What? From when do we have They're very old. The, the, the slichas that we're saying before it, the, the actual slichas that we know of, which are very old, the Golden talk about it, is on, is on Yom Kippur. Slichas on Yom Kippur is ancient. It goes back minimally to the ninth century, and probably way before that. The custom to say Selichos before Rosh Hashanah, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sure it's later. It's, I'm sure it's derivative of Yom Kippur. 
the actual Slichos is Yom Kippur, that's no question. But we have this very peculiar, okay, let's say it's a thousand years old, that's also, we've got to understand it. People have a custom for a thousand years, what is this about? So I would suggest the following, that for whatever reason, we know that in the early days they fasted on, they fasted on, on, on Rosh Hashanah. It's a very prevalent custom to fast on Rosh Hashanah. Why not? Since Rosh Hashanah is understood rabbinically as the day of judgment, of course we're going to fast. He's standing in judgment before the all-knowing God. For whatever reason, the other element of Rosh Hashanah, namely the festival of Rosh Hashanah, takes precedence and we eliminate the fasting. With the fasting, no doubt, there were also slichot. The great slichot is Yom Kippur, the fast day. So what did we do? What we did is we eliminated the, the fasting and the slichot from Rosh Hashanah. But we moved it to before Rosh Hashanah and after. In fact, is a very, I would say, very prevalent practice on the west side of Manhattan. There's an ancient custom to fast after Rosh Hashanah. The day after Rosh Hashanah, everybody fasts. I mean, those who fast, it's Song There's a minute to fast after Rosh Hashanah too. And there we have a very good example of what we see elsewhere. Sometimes, when you can't do the right thing on the day you should do it, you push it back or you push it forward, such as Yom Kippur itself. Yom Kippur is the happiest day of the year. But we're not allowed to eat. So what do we do? We eat Arab Yom Kippur. Meal Arab Yom Kippur is a big deal. Purim is the opposite. Purim is a very frightening day. We're obligated to celebrate. You have to show, you know. So what do we do? We fast the day before Purim. Even though that has no basis in the Talmud whatsoever. Time is Esther. It's a custom. Isn't it a concept about to imitate the way regarding Rosh Hashanah and regarding fasting? Do you like that? Why? Which, which non-Jews are fasting on Rosh Hashanah? No, we're talking about Arab Rosh Hashanah. Why, do they fast Arab Rosh Hashanah? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, there is such a thing as not imitating other practices. That's true. But this, I, I can't speak about other practices. I can say straight out, open the Shulchan Aruch. Talks, talks very openly about the custom, which maybe in its time was prevalent, of fasting, so he encourages it to fast Arab Rosh Hashanah, and there's a custom to fast during by the way. But some Gedaya, my point is that, that Rosh Hashanah has a dual nature, and that dual nature already you see in the, in the book of Nehemiah. And the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah, to what can we attribute the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah? On one hand, it's a festival. On the other hand, what kind of festival is it? And this moves us to the second point, which is a very important point about Rosh Hashanah. Yeah? What's the rough date of Ezra? Is it after they're they returning from exile? So is it possible that interruption was something related to what happened during the exile? Well, there's no doubt about it. The people don't seem to know that the holiday of Sukkot exists. So, now, whether they don't know it exists in theory or whether they just didn't practice it, I can't answer that question. It's a post-exilic, yeah, they're returning now to the land and Ezra is trying to set up a community. You have to remember, the people that came with Ezra for the most part were not the important people because they, why would they leave? They were doing very nicely for themselves. So he brought them to the bunch of ragamuffins back with them for the most part. Yes, what do you want to say? Yeah, you mentioned that it's the Ashkenazi practice to, uh, you know, say, Stilchus before and after this time. Where does Sephardic? No, but Sephardic say even more. The Spartans start from the, from the first day of the month of Elul. They start before. The point I was making about the Ashkenazim is 
that they dafka start slichos just before Rosh Hashanah. And yet, and they say the very long slichos are in Rosh Hashanah and the second longest ones that they have. And on Rosh Hashanah itself, they say nothing at all, which is very odd. Let me just, let me just get to this point I want to make about the dual character of Rosh Hashanah, where it's coming from. Where it's coming from is this, that on one hand, the, the, the rabbinic understanding of Yom Trua, first of all, they understand it to be shofar. Okay? They understand the word Trua not to be a, a cry of a person, but some kind of a cry from some kind of instrument. Okay, that's number one. Number two, what? The word shofar, Trua, does appear. That's right. So the shofar, Trua, appears in terms of the Yovel, and, and uh, no, there's, there's a basis for it. I'm not saying no basis for it. There'd also be a basis to use the trumpets, not the shofar, if they wanted to. So, but the point is, their understanding of this shofar, okay, is, one might say, a kind of uh, a statement which expresses the fact that God is actually present. For example, and I think for two reasons. First of all, I believe they, they interpret it this way in light of the fact that Show that Rosh Hashanah is in the list of holidays that is related to the to the to the to the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of the months, okay? And they saw in Shabbat, of course, is a day which reflects the fact that God created the world. So they're seeing in Rosh Hashanah likewise the idea that the, the world is, is, is God's world. And the idea of the seventh month, the shofar, is a kind of coronation of God, kind of enthronement ceremony. We are proclaiming God as king, and when you have a, a, a royal proclamation, it's often accompanied by trumpets or other such instruments. So on one hand, they are seeing Rosh Hashanah as sort of uh, emphasizing the fact that God is king. That's one part of it. But then the question becomes, what does it mean that God is king? What do kings do? And here on Rosh Hashanah, the rabbinic tradition makes the claim that the particular aspect, the main aspect of God on Rosh Hashanah, the main aspect of the king, is that the king is also judging. So the king sits in judgment. That's what kings often do, right? In fact, when the Jewish people want a king, in the book of Samuel, what do they say? Ushvatanu malkeinu. Our king should judge us, right? He should also go out and fight our battles, but he, the king is often a judge. So we have these two aspects of Rosh Hashanah. One is that it's a day which marks God's presence, but the other is the particular presence of, of, of God that it marks is that God is actually judging. Which is why, for example, in the, in the rabbinic construction of Rosh Hashanah, the claim, according to one view, that the world was created on, uh, around Rosh Hashanah time, if you look at the particular claim the world was created on Rosh Hashanah time, you will see that the Talmud never claims, never, that the world was created on Rosh Hashanah. The claim the Talmud makes is that the world was created, or the sixth day of creation, is actually Rosh Hashanah. The human being is created on Rosh Hashanah. That's the claim. In fact, it appears in our prayers. You know, there's a line in the prayer service that I'll talk about another time. But that particular line is, This is a day, we say in our 
prayer of Rosh Hashanah, in the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah. Chilat, the beginning of your creation, a remembrance of the first day. Kichok Yisrael hu mishpat Yaakov. A statute for Israel and the ordinance for Jacob. What does that mean? Well, what does that mean? We say this in the middle section of the Rosh Hashanah service. It's pretty awesome, actually, but what the heck does it mean? What it means is this. It means that we claim in our Rosh Hashanah prayers that we stand before God in judgment that, in fact, we, we are reenacting the first judgment. Because what does the Midrash say? It's based on a Midrash. The Midrash says that the human being was, well, that the Midrash, the Torah says, the human being was, was born, was created on a Friday. Sixth day. The Midrash says, on the day the human was created, the human sinned. Then the Midrash adds, on the day the human sinned, the human was judged. So we are entering, according to the tradition, Rosh Hashanah is that day. So it's the day of creation, Hayom Harat Olam, but it's also the day of judgment. So that's the cheerful and the not so cheerful, right? Yeah, no, the, the judgment is very simply, no one can be cheerful about standing before the all-knowing God because there's no way to, to fool you. Can't, God knows everything. That's how we begin this section in the service called Zichron Note, which is basically the central section of Rosh Hashanah. But the point of the service is, we voluntarily enter into judgment on Rosh Hashanah. And in entering judgment on Rosh Hashanah, we are recalling that first judgment, the day that Adam was created and sinned and was judged. And we are accepting upon ourselves, and we do it every year, to re-experience that day of judgment. That's the point. Once you speak of, so the shofar then has two different elements to it. On one hand, it's, it, it, it proclaims God as king. That's joyous, that's festive. That's great. We stand before God. The problem is, who is this God before whom we stand? And that God is a judge. And then we have the problems, actually, because it's a judgment from which we can't escape. Nor can anybody be pure before God. The Zichronot section of the service that I'll talk about at a different time, not in these classes, tries to explain how we can actually escape judgment, how we can be vindicated in judgment. That actually is the core piece of Rosh Hashanah and the core piece of the central service of Rosh Hashanah. But in any event, the, the, the dual element of Rosh Hashanah is exactly the point of God is king and king is judge. And I would say beyond that, I would say something else. There's something else curious about the Rosh Hashanah service that we have. The Torah says, Yom Chua Yelachem. Yom Chua Yelachem. Day of Trua. What does it mean? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, what is the shot? A day of crying out. I would say, if you push me to the wall, what does it, what does it mean? It's a day of announcement. You make us, you, you, you like an alarm. How many sounds do you need for that? One long sound is good enough. One long sound is sufficient. The same way you ended Yom Kippur with one long sound, you begin with an announcement. The rabbinic understanding of us, true is a sound, not one sound, but it's a, a shofar sound, and one sound is insufficient, it's a group of sounds. Now, what are, what are, what are the group of sounds that we have? So the Gemara says, we all know this, the Gemara says, 
It takes the word trua to be a broken sound. But before we have the trua, the Gemara says, the broken sounds, you require a, a, a plain sound before, an unbroken sound before, and an unbroken sound afterwards. In the words of the Talmud, pshuta lifanera upshuta liacharera. Pashubi is a simple sound, not a broken sound. We, instead of the word pshuta, we have a different word for pshuta, which is the word tekiya. So on Rosh Hashanah, there's a tekiya, there's a trua, and there's a tekiya. So now we got three sounds. From the three sounds, the Gemara says, you get nine. Because the Gemara somehow claims, tries to derive, base it in the verses, that you need three sets of three. So then now instead of one long sound, we got three, now we got nine. Then the Gemara comes along and says, well, we got a problem. Because we don't know exactly what the trua is. Is it just a broken little <laughs> bop, 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 bop? Is it sort of a, 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 a wailing sigh? Or is it both? So we got to do all of them. Now suddenly, instead of one to three to nine, we got 30 sounds. Okay. Then there's another custom, by the way, to blow the shofar before the, before the Amida. So you got 30 plus something in the Amida. In medieval times, it was an additional 10. They got it to 40. Then it came along the Aruch. It's an early medieval, actually, dictionary and also a scholar. And he got it to 100. So we move from one to a hundred. It, it never gets less, it always gets more for some reason. Anyway, but here's the point. What is this business of Trua and Tekiah? Well, what is that about? So several years ago, I had a good thought about this, which I'm share with you right now. Here's the shot. First of all, where do we ever have such a thing of Trua versus Tekiah? Where do we have this? The Torah, does, the Shofar never mentions it. It says, Vavarta Shofar Trua in one place. Then it talks inside of the sound of the shofar, kol ha-shofar, but it never says anything about a tekiah versus a trua, an unbroken sound versus a... But in one place it does. That's correct. In terms of the chatzotzos, the trumpets, and it's very instructive what the difference is. The Torah discriminates in Bamidbar chapter 10 between different sounds you make with the trumpets. It's like this and in two different occasions, says the Torah. When you bring people together, whether the elders or the, the heads of the tribes come for a little conference together, or you bring all the people together, you always sound the tekiah, the unbroken sound, tekiah. But when you travel in the desert and you want to instruct the tribes to travel, hmm. And the sound you make is the true one. Then the Torah continues. And when you come into the land and there is a problem, the enemy is attacking you, then it says, you make the true sound with the trumpets, the broken sound. Then the Torah adds, and you shall be remembered before God. On the other hand, when you have your, your, your happy days, your festivals, or Chodesh, or whatever, and you bring your sacrifices, then says the Torah, you make the tekiah sound. Tekiah. What does it mean? So it strikes me the following way. Two things, which the rabbinic tradition picked up. First of all, festive days, it's a tekiah. 
dangerous times, war, it's a true one. Not only is that true when you come into the land, it's equally true in the desert. When you bring people together, that's always a tzikiyah. When you're traveling in the desert, and you're about to leave your place and move through the desert, those are the most dangerous moments, transitional moments. So physically dangerous, because you're not set up to defend yourselves. And we also understand in life, it's, you know, transitional moments are moments of great uncertainty and angst, you know, anxiety. So those are the moments, says the Torah, you sound the truer. And when it comes to war, it's very interesting. If you make the truer sound, attacked by your enemy, says the Torah, you will be remembered by God, the Nizkartem. And there, you have two terms that come together. One is the word trua, and the other is the word zechira, God will remember. The rabbis picked up on something, because when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, how does the Torah describe Rosh Hashanah? In one place, Yom Trua, but the other place, Zichron Trua. So Zichron Trua, the remembrance of, right? That they're picking up on Zichron and Trua, and they're interpreting that the sound of Rosh Hashanah is not just a kind of declaration or an announcement that the seventh month is here. It may be that as well, but there's something else about the sound, about the broken sound. That the broken sound is, a kind, is an expression of our uncertainties, of our concern, of our fears. On the other hand, the rabbis make the claim, you make, don't make only the broken sounds. You make the unbroken sound before and afterwards. In other words, Rosh Hashanah consists, one might say, both of the Trua and the Tzkiah, because of the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah. Because it, on one hand, the Tzkiah is a happy sound, sounded in times of joy, because after all, Rosh Hashanah is a day in which God is present, so that's happy. That's the Tzkiah. On the other hand, on the other hand, it's, it is a time of uncertainty. The uncertainty for the rabbinic tradition, why is it a time of uncertainty? Because it's a day of judgment. And they try to trace all that back. The claim is that it takes us back to the beginning of time, just like the Sabbath, because it's the Sabbath of the month. It takes us back to the creation of the human being and the uncertainties of the human being. And by the way, the idea of the uncertainty of, of what, what lies before us, which is the great fear, it's exactly what the Ashkenazic tradition, the Yiddishvarim don't say this, but the Ashkenazim, you know, each community has its own special prayers. I think for the, for the Ashkenazim, on Rosh Hashanah, they say, what is the, the additional prayer that we have on Rosh Hashanah, which is, for the Ashkenazim, represents Rosh Hashanah. It's probably the medieval poem, Ua Natana Tokef. Natana Tokef, the point of it is, the uncertainty. Right? What's gonna, who knows what's going to be, right? Who knows? That's the point of it. We don't know. We may be at a very bad end. No one can actually predict. We're just hoping for the best. But it's not that control. They're picking up on the uncertainties, you know, and that's part of the fear. It's not just being found guilty. It's that we don't know what's going to be. So that's on the other hand, it is a holiday, it's a festival, it's God's, we're in God's presence. I would say for the Ashkenazim, it strikes me that 
we distinguish from the Ashkenazim between the shofar blowing before Shmona Esrei and the shofar in Shmona Esrei. The shofar before Shmona Esrei, actually, for the Ashkenazim, is a focus on, on God's kingship, the enthronement of God, which is why the Ashkenazim, before they blow the shofar, they, they read a psalm, Psalm 47. Which describes the world embracing God as as uh, as uh, as king. The shofar is a musical instrument which is used in zamelenu im zamelu. Sing out to sing out to the king. Right? Because God is king of the whole world. Because it takes you back to creation, not just the Jewish people, the whole world. In the Shemot Esrei is another story. Because <laughs> in the Shemot Esrei, the shofar is appended to the prayers. And in the Shemot Esrei of Rosh Hashanah, each of the three sections has, a, has its own petition. The middle section, remember us for good, remember the binding of Isaac. Right? Hear our, hear our prayers with, with, uh, with, 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 with mercy. So the idea of the shofar as a prayer a wordless prayer, but a prayer which the davening tries to explain, to, to expand upon. That's the focus, I think, in the short answer. Yeah? Yeah, question. When you started, uh, you pointed out that uh, the show was never really mentioned. Never. And you spoke two or three examples of trumpets. When did it get so incorporated in? Oh, it's ancient. It's already in the Talmud. It's in the Mishnah. So it, it probably well predates them. I mean, it's these are ancient traditions. So, as far as we know, it was always there. I'm simply making a point that it's, at some point in time, it was an act of interpretation. Most of some kind of tradition. Because when you read the Chumash, you don't necessarily get the sense that it's an instrument at all. And if it is an instrument, it says nothing about the shofar. So, the shofar is, the reason I think the reason that. I think what, what we can make of this understanding that is the shofar is that the shofar, unlike the Chatzot's road, the Chatzot's road are basically about us. We are crying out. We, we are, we are it's an expression of our, of, our, of our concerns. The shofar is more about God. When God comes down to Sinai, there's the shofar. The shofar is accompanies this, 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 this revelation. The shofar is about God's, about God's presence. Which brings me to the last point I want to make about Rosh Hashanah. And it's this. I think there's another, through studying the Torah, there's another source that we may have which allows us to understand something about Rosh Hashanah. The source is not in the halachic and the legal sections of the Torah, not in these lists of holidays. But the source is to be found in a story. The story is the story of the Jewish people who leave the land of Egypt, which is the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus has two parts. The first part is the leaving of Egypt and the crossing of the sea, which is part one. And the second half of Exodus is what happens after we cross the sea. What happens after we cross the sea, we begin our journey through the desert. Well, the first thing we do is very often is to uh, is to complain. 
But eventually this journey brings us to Sinai. And we stand before God at Sinai, we hear the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up to bring down the tablets, and then, a very defining moment for the Jewish people, we have the golden calf. And Moses is told to go down, go back down. People have corrupted themselves. Moshe comes down, because he pleads with God not to destroy the people, and God agrees. Moshe comes down, he sees the people dancing before the golden calf, he breaks the tablets. And then begins this process of reconciliation. And the process of reconciliation has many stages to it. First is a civil war. Those who made the golden calf and those who didn't, etc. After all that is taken care of, Moshe goes back to God and pleads again with God to forgive the people. And God says to Moses at the end of chapter, beginning of chapter 33, tell the people that they can go to the lands go to the land. Exodus chapter 33 I will send my angel before you. He will drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan but I will not go with you lest I destroy you on the way. Chapter 33 of Exodus When the people heard this terrible news it says they all mourned they took their jewelry off and God said to Moshe tell the people keep the jewelry off what can I do? If I go with you, you're stubborn, we're going to fight, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> Keep the jewelry off, and let me consider what to do. And then, the Torah describes a, ser- a sequence of events. The first one, the people uh, initiate, and the others, Moshe initiates. Three things they do. After which, Moshe goes back to God and says, what's going to be? God says to Moses, okay, I will go with you and I'll go with them. Meet me, stand before me. And God appears before Moshe in chapter 34 of the book of uh, Exodus and reveals to Moses what we call the yud gimel Midot, the attributes of God's mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, Vachanum. At which point, Moshe goes back up the mountain, silently, brings down the tablets, second set of tablets, and Moses comes down the mountain and the Mishkan can be built. They build the Mishkan and God is present in the Mishkan and that is the end of the book of Exodus. Now here's the point I want to make about this sequence of events. The book of Exodus actually is the main source for what we call the, uh, the Jewish calendar. The first half is about Egypt. About Pesach. That's the first book. Weaving Mitzrayim. Okay, fine. The second half of the book of Exodus, though, is not about physically weaving Egypt, but it's about spiritually weaving Egypt. The golden calf, what did the people say at the golden calf? These are your gods of Israel who took you out of Egypt. So what does that mean? It means you're still in Mitzrayim. What else could it mean? If you think the golden calf took you out of Egypt, spiritually you never left. So the question is, how do you leave? The goal of the book of Exodus, the goal was to build a space in which God and the human being, in this case Israel, could actually live together. That's the goal. It's like God Eden of sorts. Sacred space, God is there, we're there, we, we, we can somehow live together. The problem is, what the golden calf demonstrated was that that's not possible. 
or it appears to be not possible. Until Moshe and the people take certain measures, maybe God takes certain measures, and then somehow it becomes possible to build the Mishkan. But before you can build the Mishkan, something has to happen first, which is Moses has to receive instructions about God. God must inform Moshe about the nature of God, or say the nature of God that allows access to God. Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Vachanum, Erech Apayim Rav Chesed Vemet. Afterwards, you build the Mishkan. Now, we have to remember that when the people first were told that God will not go with them, which means what? God won't go with them. It means there won't be a Mishkan. You can go to the land, you have my best angel, you drive out the people, have a nice life, but I'm not going to go with you means I can't live with you. It means there won't be a Mishkan, won't be a sanctuary, won't be a tabernacle. When the people heard that bad news, as the Torah puts it, they all mourned. What are they mourning? They're mourning the absence of the, of the Mishkan, they're mourning the absence of the Temple. Now my contention is that the Jewish calendar is largely predicated on these sequence of events. It all begins, actually, with the loss of this Mishkan, the loss of the Temple, the loss of God's presence. That is essentially on the Jewish calendar. Jewish calendar is a way to act out your own life through the calendar on a yearly basis. That's what it is. The mourning for the absence of God's presence or the, or the temple is what we call Tishabah, or the three weeks leading up to Tishabah. And that's the first step is to recognize what's missing. The people recognize what's missing. The people were very sad. Truth is, I might have acted differently. Listen, you can have the angel, you drive out the people, and have, I'm not going to go with you. Okay, can't get everything, you know. 90%, good enough, right? One have, have a temple, okay, fine, but the angel we have, right? But the people didn't see it that way. The people actually mourned. The, the, the day of mourning for the Jewish people is actually Tisha B'Av, so it's recognizing what is missing. On our calendar, we have a day that marks Moses receiving God's instruction about the nature of God, which is Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun Erech Apayim Rav Chesed Vemet. Of course, that's correct. That's Yom Kippur. That's the basic prayer of Yom Kippur, by the way. The fundamental prayer of Yom Kippur is what you call the Yud Gimel Midot. We call them Slichot. That's what it is. It's actually not just a prayer, it's also a statement about, it's as much as we can know about God. The Rambam was very attuned to that in his guide. He's very bothered by it. Attributes of action, he called it. God is teaching Moses something about God. And the Yud Gimel Midot in the Chumash, actually, Hashem Hashem Kelrachum Vachanun, are what allows the next thing to happen. Or the next two things. One is to receive the Torah. But then, of course, how the book ends. The book ends with the building of this, of this Mishkan. How do we mark the Mishkan on our, on our calendar? Of course, Sukkot is the Mishkan. Sukkot is the, for a hundred reasons, by the way. The cloud is only one of a hundred. Sukkot is the Mishkan. In fact, the word Sukkah itself, Sukkah, is, is, can, yes, it is protection, and it's also found in the very temple itself, in the holiest vessel of the temple, which is the ark. The cherubs, the kruvim, we are told, In fact, not only that, when Moses stands before God, and he begs God to reveal God's presence, and to, to reside amongst the people, 
So God says to Moses, okay, stand before me. I will protect you as I cross over. What is the Hebrew? The Sakoti Kapi Olecha Adovrim. The Sakoti. Sukkah. Sukkah is protection. The Sukkah represents God's presence, which is the goal of the book of, of Exodus, the goal of Shemot. What makes it possible, what makes Sukkot possible, Sukkot is the great holiday, the culminating holiday in the Chumash. What makes Sukkot possible is actually Yom Kippur. So on our calendar, we have Tishabov. Tishabov is, of course, rabbinic. <coughs> That's biblical roots. <coughs> we have Yom Kippur. The day of instruction that allows us to live together with God. And we have the culminating event of Exodus, and the culminating festival of Sukkot. These, these three lectures or sessions or whatever, one is Rosh Hashanah, one's Yom Kippur, one's Sukkot. Maybe when we get to Sukkot, we'll spell it out more fully, the Sukkah as the Mishkan. It's actually the Pshad and Chumash. It's not a Drush, the Pshad and Chumash, actually. Now, so we have Tishabov, we have Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot, what's missing? Yeah. So Rosh Hashanah. So the question is, in this model, if this, if this model was accurate, where in fact is Rosh Hashanah? So I have a suggestion about Rosh Hashanah given this model. There are three things that happen in between the people's mourning and God's revelation of the attributes of murder. By the way, let me just explain one small point, which is in order to build the Mishkan, this is an obvious point once you hear it, but it's not so obvious. When Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks the tablets. The significance of Moses breaking the tablets is what? What is a significant event? He took God's tablets and he breaks them. Because once you get right, once you break the tablets, you can't have a Mishkan. Because remember, the tablets are the only piece of the Mishkan that a human being cannot make. Everything else, you have Betzalel, he's terrific, he's got his whole crew with him. But there's one thing you can't do. Right? The Luchot are the word of God. The stones were hewed by God, they're written by God. No person, so when Moses breaks the tablets, effectively what he's, what he's done is to make the Mishkan impossible, except if God gives Moses and us another set of tablets. It can't be a Mishkan. So Moses requesting a second set of tablets, that's necessary for the building of the Mishkan. So what took place in between the time that Israel mourned and cried about God's absence to God's agreeing to dwell amongst Israel, to dwell together with us? I would point to three things in the text. And maybe the Rosh Hashanah as presented to us by our tradition perhaps plays off this. The first step because what's happening over here is these are things that are preliminary to God agreeing to dwell amongst us. Something about Yom Kippur, which is actually such an awesome day, really, but this idea of being together with God, which is, which is Yom Kippur, is, I would say, is represented very well by this idea of the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, standing before God alone. That's, it's very striking. 
So, but the question is, what allows you to get there? I would say the following three things. Number one, we are told in chapter 33, verse number six, when God said to Moses, tell the people, you're so stubborn. If I go to be a bikir b'cham, if I'm in your midst, I will destroy you. Take off your jewelry or keep off your jewelry. Let me think what I should do. And the next verse is, verse number 6 in chapter 33, page 186. The translator says, so the Israelites remained stripped of the finery from Mount Chorev on. The Hebrew is very instructive. And what does Vayitnat Tzlu mean? So the reader is reminded of the fact that when we left Egypt, we were told to take the jewelry from the Egyptians and the words of the Torah, V'nitzaltem et Mitzrayim. You shall despoil. V'nitzaltem et Mitzrayim. It appears more than once. Here the point seems to be the gold that we took out of Egypt, right, has a dual character. On one hand, it represents freedom because if you leave with nothing, you're not really free either. It also represented for the Jewish people, sad to say, very sad. It represented for the slaves the idea that the Egyptians have actually freed them. It's pathetic, but that's what it is. It's pathetic. It's basic insecurity. You have to be told by the Egyptians, actually, that you're free. Because you don't feel it yourself. That's what it is. So the gold actually represents two things. On one hand, it represents freedom, but on the other hand, it's something else. It represents they're still connected. Because the gold they took out of Egypt, what did they do? They made a golden calf. You took us out of Egypt, means you never left. So the first step then in repentance, maybe this is Rosh Hashanah, is to distance yourself from whatever's happened in the past. It's the first step. To, to, to reject the past. Later in the Torah, you actually can, can, can reintegrate, because later the gold is used to build the Mishkan. But at this point in time, you can't. At this point, you're not ready for that yet. At this point in time, you have to leave Mitzrayim behind. You have to leave that past behind. And uh, that in the Torah is, That's the first step. That's the first step. Now we come to two additional steps that are very interesting, and I, I'll talk in very general terms, and I'm sure each of us can take this time to, to, to embellish it and to improve it. But I would say, what you have next in the Torah is very striking. Slaves going free? Excuse me? The slaves going free? The slaves going free is not here. No, that's true, but that's later on. I'm saying, what do you have here in, in Sefer Shemot? In between... You have in, in, in Sefer Shemot, in between, in between the mourning for the, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the fact that God won't go with us, and the Yud Gimel Midot, which is chapter 34. In between 32, beginning of 33 and 34, you have the rest of chapter 33. So the first point is the peoples separate themselves from their past, as it were, from, from, the, from the gold, from Israel. That's one thing. But the next thing is very interesting, and it's this. It said, God said to Moshe, I can't dwell amongst you. 
So the next verse says that Moshe took his own tent. Moshe I think refers to his own tent. Moses also has a tent. He took this tent and he set it up, we are told, outside the camp. He set it up far away from the camp. So God is not dwelling amongst us. On the other hand, remember God said to Moshe, listen, let's, let's, initially God said to Moshe, let's dump these people all together, and me and you, we, 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 we get along great. I'm, I'm, I'll make you a nation. Moshe said, uh, no thank you. You know, I appreciate it, but it's not for me. These are your people at the moment. God said, I can't, I, I can't dwell amongst them, right? So Moshe says, okay, here's the deal. So you can't dwell amongst them, me you love. So here's what we're going to do. You dwell with me. But, it's not going to be in the middle of the camp. It'll be very far away. On the other hand, God is being brought closer to the people. And now, suddenly the people have, in fact, access to God if they want it. If they want it. That's what the Torah says. He, Moses, Moses took his own tent and he called it Olel Moed. Olel Moed in the Torah is a synonym for the Mishkan. He called it the sanctuary. The first point is, whoever would seek out God, Levakesh is to engage in a long search. If you wanted to seek out God, you could take the journey. You could start that journey to travel in the words of the Torah, you know something interesting about this? Here's what we usually think. We usually think in the reading the history of the, of the Torah, or whatever. So in the desert we had a Mishkan. When you come into the land, you have a, a temple, a Mikdash. What is the difference between the Mishkan and the Mikdash? The Mishkan is movable. Mishkan travels with you. When you come into the land, in the book of Zavarim, it talks about the place that God has chosen. There's one place. Truth is that actually it's the opposite. Because here you see straight out. We had a Mikdash before we had a Mishkan. Because what is the main point of the Mikdash? It's far away. So therefore, what Moshe does over here, first of all, he gives the people access to God, but he, but he makes, makes a different point. You have access to God if you are seeking. There's the difference between, if you're seeking, the difference between the, the, the idea of the, the Mishkan God's always with you. So you never have to search. But once you have a Mikdash, then the Torah speaks about something else, which is the journey. The journey. is even when God is close, and God is to be found. I would say here, Mavakesh, as opposed to Lidrosh, means God is, in fact, I was just in Israel recently, and talking to this uh, very interesting guy, Arab, he's an Arab, he's an Arab worker, who was very excited he had gone, he had gone to Mecca two years ago or something, talks about the journey. It's interesting, actually. In other words, the journey becomes very important. The Mishkan, there are no journeys. You have to see, because God is always there. When something's always there, human nature is, you never appreciate it because it's always there. You appreciate it after it disappears. When it's there, no one appreciates it. So the point is, suddenly the journey, suddenly it's about seeking. And I think that in terms of Rosh Hashanah, which precedes Yom Kippur, it's the beginning of a journey. That's the point. Because, yes, God is still far away. 
Interesting, by the way, is an Torah, second day Rosh Hashanah. Right? Motzachein b'amidbar, it's also an Torah, by the way. Motzachein b'amidbar, am seride cherev, aloch liargil Yisrael. What's the next verse? Neirachok Hashem nirali. Neirachok. I see God from, from, from far away. Right? Whatever rachok means, any distant past, but neirachok Hashem nirali. The point then becomes, what is Moses doing for us over here? He's our teacher. He's giving us an opportunity to engage in, this, in, the, in the search. This is the second step. The first step was to distance ourselves from the negative elements of the past. Because you can't reintegrate first. First you have to distance. First you put it aside. Maybe later in life you can reincorporate. Not to deny the past, but to reincorporate the past. And then there's a third interesting piece to this over here, and this I will conclude, which is some people, those who would seek out God, would go to the tent, which was outside the camp. And then it says the following, that when Moses would go out to the tent himself, the people would stand up and stand by their own tents. And they would gaze at Moses until he went into his tent. And when Moses would go into his tent, and the cloud would descend upon his tent, God would be present. In verse number 10, So when they saw the cloud entering Moses' tent, they would stand and watch him. And then it says, they would all stand up and bow down by the door of their own tent. What is that about, actually? What is that about? That's the third thing. Those are the three things. That's it, right? That's it. Those are the three things the Torah says in between God's telling Moses he can't go with us. Until verse number 12 when Moshe now, Moshe now petitions. Sounds like Moshe can't petition God until first the people have done these three things. They've separated from the gold. They, at least some of them, set out on a journey, on a search. And then there are many others who don't, apparently don't set out on the search, but they do something else. They somehow identify, right? Because after all, they're not going to be in Moses' tent. It's very far away. Not everybody can go to Moshe's tent. But what it sounds like is they would gaze, they would look at Moshe entering the tent, they would see the cloud, they would know that God speaks to Moshe, and when they would see this cloud, they would stand and bow down, ish petach alo, at the entrance of, of his tent, means their own tent. So what is that about? What is this identification about? Sounds like it's, it's, about, it's about trying to... How should I put this? It's trying to... Try to identify, it's a better word than identify. Right. It's, right. it's to, exactly. It's to bring the Moshe's experience, which is not them, but the, to bring, to identify with Moshe and his experience, even where they are. Because they're not there yet. It's, it's, it's basically where I am. In other words, just so recently, uh, I'll conclude with this. There's a school in Israel called Makar Chayim, which I'm very fond of. 
So the head of the school sent out a letter from Chodesh Elul. It's kind of a letter you don't get in too many schools in the world. It talks about Rav Nachman's idea of Ratzel Vashov, the dialectic of going back and forth, which he interprets the following way. One is about ascending to heaven, he says. We, we try to ascend to heaven. That's Ratzel. It's going up, moving upward. And then there's the other piece of it, which is Vashov, which means returning to the world in which we actually live. Mm-hmm. Returning to the real world, okay? And trying to find within the world in which we live, although with many problems, those holy sparks. And that is, I think, what we're trying to do on Rosh Hashanah. We're not there, obviously. We're not standing before God in some intimate setting. Not at all. We're beginning a process. But the point is, over here, to try to figure out a way, in terms of who I really am, not to make believe I'm somebody else. I'm not there, I'm here. And yet, by identifying with, with Moshe, I would say the very act of seeing, to see, not just to see, to see is to identify, to perceive. When Moses sees the Holy Land, I would say he's there. In a certain sense, he's actually there. And the, and the point is that these are three things the Torah describes about the people generally. How do you get from the place where God says, I can't go with you, a place where I would say, now Moses could actually pray for us. Moses prays for us, but Moshe wakes. Moshe is testing us, perhaps, or giving us an opportunity to position ourselves in such a way that, that, that makes Yom Kippur possible. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. So these are the three things in the Chumash. I'm wondering if the rabbinic conception of Rosh Hashanah is not, in some, to some degree, emerging from a reading of the story over here. The Jewish calendar is certainly based upon the story. From Tisha B'Av, one fast day, to the great fast of Yom Kippur, to the tabernacle, to the Mishkan, to God's presence. And positioned in between the three steps over here is what I would call the beginning of the search, the beginning of the identification, the beginning of thinking how in my life, really, I can achieve a certain holiness, even though I'm far away. That's, I think, what Rosh Hashanah is actually about. Mm-hmm.